We'll open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians is an interesting book because it's, it's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to this group of Christians in this city called Corinth. And it was a church that he had planted. He had gone and shared the gospel with them. People's lives had been changed and this church had been formed and God was doing great things. And so Paul, as he did in his ministry, moved on. And he went and planted other churches. And he begins to hear that things in Corinth are going very poorly. And so he's concerned. And so he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians and eventually 2 Corinthians to them to teach them some things, to correct some things. But the biggest thing as we've walked through the, the book so far is that we've seen the Corinthians have become saturated with the ways of the world. They have crossed from death to life. They have accepted Christ as their Savior. And they've come and they've formed this great church. But instead of leaving their old way of thinking, they've sort of brought it into the church, maybe used new Christian-y sort of language. But they're really thinking in the same way. And so what Paul is doing, as the graphic implies, he's, he's taking the church in Corinth, and with the power of the gospel and applying God's word to them, he's wringing them out. Just wringing out that old way of thinking. And then he wants them to be saturated with the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done for them on the cross, and who they are because of that. So everything in this book of 1 Corinthians really comes from that motivation of Paul to, to help them to understand who they are in Jesus Christ. And I've always found in my own life and in the lives of others, that's a, a huge encouragement. It's a huge challenge. It's something we constantly need to hear about who we are in Christ because that makes the difference, as Claudia was talking about, in how we obey, makes the difference in how we live. It really changes our whole motivation and our outlook. So let's start with this, right? Imagine that it's a family gathering. Now, you're really going to have to work hard at this one. Imagine it's summer, okay? And it's, it's hot. I know that sounds strange, but it, it's hot and, and you're, there's a family gathering and you're all out on, on kind of the front porch or some, some lawn chairs in the front yard and, and maybe in the, uh, the garage or out on the driveway and, and cars are whizzing by on the street and all the little cousins are playing out front and the parents are sitting there talking and they're sipping iced tea, some good sweet tea. This is Rochester. I don't know. Do we drink sweet tea in Rochester? Yeah, I do. So I've moved around a lot, so I pick up things from different places. But I like sweet tea. So they're sitting there, it's hot, and they're sipping sweet tea and just sharing the stories of the family. Some people are arguing, some people are laughing. Typical family, right? Some people you can't tell if they're arguing or laughing. And one little child, one of the two-year-old cousins, is out there playing, and a butterfly flies across the yard. And that little girl is just entranced by the butterfly. She's saying, oh, butterfly, butterfly. She starts running across the yard, and the butterfly turns and flies out over the street. And that little girl begins to follow. And at that moment, let's say I'm the dad, and I'm sitting on the porch, and, and some of the other aunts and uncles are, are sitting around, and, and, and everybody kind of out of the corner of the eye sees this, and oh, what's going on? And maybe they glance at me, the dad, and, and I look, and I think, that's my girl. She's... She's running out into the street. And you know that feeling you get that just sort of wells up inside of you and every muscle just tenses up like ready to spring. And I just imagine in that moment that I would jump up and get a refill on iced tea. (laughs) Right? Now, let's say, 
let's assume she ended up fine, okay? She didn't run out in the street. But that's what I did. And you watched me do that. What would you think about me? I hope you would think two words. And I would give you permission to think these two words. Bad father, right? Because in that moment, I would have said, I want to do something instead of protecting my child. And maybe in that moment, I would have been thinking, well, she's happy. She loves the butterfly. I mean, man, if I go out and get her, and this is so true of my almost two-year-old little girl, if, if I went out to get her and picked her up, she would probably beat me up black and blue. She is in a kicking, screaming, hitting phase. It's awesome. I love it. She's so advanced, she's not even two yet, and already showing those signs of the terrible twos. And she would scream and cry for, you know, 20 minutes until we gave her a cookie or something. And as a dad, I might be tempted to think, I don't want to do that to my daughter. She's going to be mad at me. She's going to be upset. I'm going to kill her fun, and I, I don't want to do that. Well, sure, I know about the cars and how quick they're going and their impact on a child. And and I might know all that more than she does, but really, who am I? Who am I to impose upon my daughter in her joy? That's not how a a dad would respond, is it? Because the loving thing to do would be to jump up, spill the iced tea, push the other cousins out of the way, grab your daughter by the back of her shirt, pull her back, wrap her up in your arms, and just hug her. And even as she kicks and screams and cries, say, little girl, you have no idea what I just saved you from. Because love pursues those who are in need. It goes after them. And that's what Paul is doing in all of 1 Corinthians, but I think we're really going to see it in our passage this morning. He is pursuing them with love. Let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. I'll read it for you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. If you really don't have a Bible at home, I give you permission to steal that one. Just take it with you. We'll get more. I would like you to have a Bible in your home as long as you read it. So you can follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14 through 16. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? In verse 16, Paul says to the Corinthians, imitate me. Now, at first glance, that seems very arrogant, doesn't it? The very thing he's accusing these other people of. Hey, look at me. You should be like me. You should do what I do. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, you don't even have to turn there. I'll put it up here. But you can turn there if you want. Okay, so there's 1 Corinthians 4.16. Helps if I look at my notes. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 says this. Follow my example as I, what? Follow the example of Christ. 
And it's really important to keep this in here because this is what Paul is talking about. He's not saying, hey, I'm so great, look at me, do what I do. He's saying, look, Christ has saved me. I've given my life to follow him. And we've looked at some of the things that Paul and some of the other apostles have endured. The hardships, the pressure, the threats on their lives, the being cast out from society. And Paul says, look, I'm following Christ and I do what I do as an example for you. For Paul, being a teacher was not just about the words that he spoke. It was about the way he lived his life. And I want us today to first look at how God loves us, how God pursues us through Jesus Christ, because that's the example that Paul's looking at. Okay, so that's one thing we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at how do we pursue others with Christ's love. Because that's what Paul was doing to the Corinthians. Are you with me? So that's what we're going to look at, this idea of pursuing love. That God is pursuing us with his love, and we need to pursue others with the love of Christ. So we're going to look at six ways. Okay, six ways that we see this pursuing love in this passage. The first one you're going to see is this idea of a fatherly love. If you're following along in the notes, these are in the notes. If you want to jot down some notes, it's up to you. Starting in verse 14 through the beginning of 15, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Now let's just stop there. He's contrasting these two groups of people, fathers and guardians. Your translation might be a little different. It could be a tutor, uh, an overseer, a steward. I think one translation had others who are leading you or something like that. But the word was something that was very familiar to them in their culture. It was very similar to, I think, what we would call a nanny. It was someone who helped raise the littlest kids. It was like a full-time paid babysitter often a servant in the household. And what would happen is is when the kids needed to get up and go do their lessons, the tutor or the steward, the guardian, would be the one to take them to where they did their lessons, maybe do some of the most basic lessons with them, would take them to the marketplace, would protect them, watch over them, and keep them in line. Right? In fact, there's inscriptions, and I wish I would have found one, but there's a picture uh, that archaeologists have dug up of a guardian, and it's it's kind of the idea. I think a modern equivalent would be sort of the the old teacher with the ruler in their hand, and it literally is a picture of this guardian with a little rod in his hand and and sort of ready to whack the child if they got out of line, and that was the picture. This very stern, almost uncaring about the child, but very much caring that the child stayed in line because that was their job. So on the one hand, we have this guardian. And on the other hand, we have the father. And the father loves the child, not just because it's the father's job, but because it's the father's child. Are there rules? Are there guidelines? Does the child need to stay within that? Absolutely, but it's out of love, not some idea of obligation. The other thing that was interesting is that as the child grew, the role of the guardian faded into the background. And sometimes what would happen is that the guardian would get attached to the child or want to hold on to their job. And as the child was transitioning to maybe being an apprentice of the father and learning the family business, the guardian at times would assert himself 
and say, no, 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 this is how you should do it. No, 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 that's not the right way. Because you could imagine kind of helping to raise the kid and then having to step back. And the guardian would have to be put in their place. Say, no, no, that's not your job. This is not your trade. You need to step to the side and let the father take over. And so Paul is saying to them, look, you might have had a lot of teachers that come through. You might have had a lot of preachers that came through. And we know from Corinth, uh, from the other passages, they were really enamored with superstar speakers. Good thing Christians don't have that problem today, right? And they just were, oh, he's so amazing. And they would follow one after another after another. And Paul's saying, look, that's great. You might have had many people that God has kind of used in some way in your life but I'm the one who shared the gospel with you. I'm the one who loves you as a father. He has a fatherly love. He feels a responsibility about them, and he has heard that they're going in the wrong direction. And as a father, he's reaching out, and he says, no, I love you too much. You see, the guardian could move on. Eh, whatever, bad kid, not my fault. But the father says, no, I'm going to do something about this. And so he reaches out in love and does something. So the first thing we see is this idea of a fatherly love. And part of that fatherly love is this warning. This is a favorite word for Paul. He is warning them. He's stepping in and saying, wait a minute, you're going in the wrong direction. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, this says uh, it actually uses the same word and says this is a part of all religious leaders' jobs all pastors, teachers, elders, overseers, whatever. Warning is a part of that. It's part of the love of the people. And then just two verses later, this is really interesting, it says all Christians are to do this with each other. It's part of our love for each other. If we see someone, a brother and sister in Christ, heading in the same direction to say, wait a minute, I love you too much to just say, ah, whatever. I'll just let you go. You say, no, no, wait a minute, let me show you God's word. Let me help you to know how God loves you and how I love you. So that's what Paul is doing in fatherly love. He is talking to them. Secondly, we see it's, it's not only fatherly love, it's a life-giving love. Look at the second part of verse 15. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Parents, do you want what's best for your kids? And I hope, as a parent, the answer is always yes. Of course we want what's best for our kids. Of course we want good things for our kids. So then we have to ask ourselves, what determines what's best? Because what if our standard of what's best is twisted and warped? What if it's messed up? What if we think instead of giving the the child-safe toy to our child, we think what's best for them is to play with the rat poison? Are we wanting what's best? Well, yeah. Are we giving them what's best? (laughs) No. No, we've just put them in danger. Paul is looking at them and he's saying, look, I loved you so much, I gave you what I knew was absolutely best for you. It wasn't your temporary happiness. It wasn't something to just get you by. It was the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God sent his son to die for you. And on the cross, all of your sins have been paid for. And if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are brought from death to life. You are a new person, a new creation. He says, that's what I gave you. That's not preaching to itching ears. That's not just giving people what they want to hear. That's tough love at times. 
but it's life. Paul loved them with a life-giving love. So we, we have the fatherly love, a life-giving love, and a trailblazing love. Look at verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Now, I talked about this a little bit earlier. Paul is not saying he's perfect. Okay, This is not the leader that stands up and says, well, I've overcome everything and you just need to be like me because <laughs> I'm perfect. That was not Paul. He was not arrogant. I don't think you can read Paul's writings and think in any way, shape, or form he was arrogant. If anybody understood his own sinful heart, it was Paul. He was very open and honest about it. In fact, I think that was part of his example, is being honest about his own sin. Paul has gone before them as he follows Christ. He has blazed a trail. You know, this winter, in case you didn't notice, we had a lot of snow, right? I mean, out in our back field here, I think in many places we had two to three feet of snow just constantly over the past month or so. Now, I'm not such a good dad that I took my kids out there, but imagine <laughs> some good father said, hey, we're going to go walk out in the snow. You know, my little two-year-old or five-year-old or even my, my 11-year-old and the other one is nine, I think. It's <sighs> oh, too many kids. maybe they're not going to walk through three feet of snow, right? Three feet is like above their waistline. They need somebody to step in front of them. And when you blaze a trail, you're stepping in front of somebody in such a way that you're creating a trail for them to follow. And Paul was constantly holding himself and the other apostles up saying, look, we've been through this for you. We've done the suffering for you. We've preached the gospel for you. We've shown the humility for you. We've endured being called fools by this world for you. We've blazed the trail. Why are you setting off on your own? Don't try to find your own way. Follow us, not because we're perfect, but because Christ is perfect and he's the one we're following. Imitate me as I follow Christ. Paul didn't just love through teaching. He loved through how he lived his life as an example. I spent about nine years as a youth pastor, and you see a lot of things in nine years in youth ministry. And, and one thing I would see often was parents that would bring their kids to youth group or to the church to say, you know, I just think this will be good for my child. I, I hope they pick up some good things, make some good friends. I, I hope they get some good things. And they would drop off the kid and they would leave. They would go out and do whatever they wanted to do. And you work with the kid, and, and sometimes what you see is that what the child was struggling with is that they had a parent that said good things to them, taught good things to them, but then lived completely different. Friends, if we want to be teachers for Christ, if we want to be influencers to our own kids or anybody around us for Jesus Christ, we need to not only watch what we say, but we need to live it out in every aspect of what we do. It's something as a church we take very seriously. At all levels, teachers up through as we're working on elders, we're pounding this in to say, you've got to live out the humility of Jesus Christ at all levels. Because you can't say one thing and do another. Paul was an example in how he gave up status and accepted offensive treatment. He was an example 
that they were to imitate and how he was regarded as a fool for Christ yet held on to the wisdom of God. He was an example in enduring persecution. He was an example in recognizing all that he was and all that he had received and all that he did was simply because of the grace of Jesus Christ, not any of his own merit. This was the example of the trailblazing love. So we have fatherly love, life-giving love, trailblazing love. And then in verse 17, we see a persistent love. Verse 17 says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul has received word that these people that he spent a lot of time with, did a lot of teaching with, shared his life together with, they're wandering away from what he's taught them. And it's not actually that they're wandering away from their faith. They're not doubting Christ. They're not giving up Christ. They're still a church, but they're not acting like a church. There's infighting and bickering and following one leader over another and just hatred in the church. That's how they were wandering away from what they believed. Now, Paul could have said, well, I did all I could. I tried. I was there. Hey, guys, I I did all I could while I was there, and now you've chosen your own way, so wash my hands of you. I'm done. He could have said that. He was already on to something else. And he could have said, just forget it. It's not worth it. I'm going to spend my time where it's going to do something. But instead, he looked at them with a persistent love. A love that keeps going in spite of difficulties. And the way that he was persisting in loving them was to send to them Timothy. He said, I can't come right now, but I'm going to send something, someone to you who's going to teach you, who's going to remind you of what I've been telling you all along, who's going to come and instruct you in the right way to go. Timothy's job was to remind the Corinthians not just of of Paul's teaching, but to give them an example of Paul's living and to remind them of how Paul himself lived because that's what they were struggling with. Their leaders weren't living the example that they were talking about. And so he doesn't just give up. He reaches out with this persistent love. So we have a fatherly love, a life-giving love, a trailblazing love, and a persistent love. And then starting in verse 18, we see a discerning love. And i got to tell you, when we talk about love, I think this is the one we struggle with the most. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. A couple nights ago, as a family, we, we watched a movie. It was called Earth to Echo. Anybody ever seen Earth to Echo? Cute little movie, kind of a modern-day E.T. That's all right. But there was a scene in the movie, and it's a scene that gets repeated in many different movies, many different novels. It's kind of a classic thing. The child is maybe sneaking out and and comes up with a lie to tell the parent of where they're going, going over to sleep at so-and-so's house, and they're kind of trying to run out the door, hoping their parent doesn't catch them. And the parent goes, okay, honey, have a nice time. And the child stops, right? They go, wait a minute. I'm trying to get out, but, I mean, it'd be nice if they at least asked. I mean, if they cared enough to try to figure out where I was going. So then they take it a little further. They say, okay, Mom, you know, uh, me and Jimmy, we're going to go out and play with fire and burn down his house. Is that okay? Sure, honey, have a great time. Just love you, sweetie. That's great. Go ahead. And the kid's like, 
wait a minute. Okay, mom, and I'm taking the keys to the car, and we're going to go for a joyride and see how many cars we can smash. You know, 100 points a car. Is that okay? Sure, honey. Have a great time. You've seen this in movies somewhere. And it's just a picture of the inattentive parent that's not listening what the child is saying and discerning whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. And it's comical. It's why I think a lot of movies or stories use it, because it's funny in a very sad way. Paul is looking at the Corinthians, and he is discerning. He's listening to what's going on, and he is making judgments about it. This is where we struggle with love in Scripture. Oh, we love the love part of it. We love the grace and the happiness and the sweetness. And, but then when we get into any aspect of discernment or judgment, we say, wait a minute. Oh, that's not love. How dare you? So let's look at what's going on here. Paul is looking at them, and he's heard what's going on, and he is judging whether or not it is right or wrong, and he's going to do something based on that judgment. Now, some people might say, wait a minute. The Bible tells us not to judge, right? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not judge, this is Jesus speaking, Do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Very obvious. Don't judge. John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. Horrible, sinful situation. She's caught, she's brought before Jesus by these religious leaders, basically saying, hey, what do we do with her, Jesus? You tell us, you're so awesome. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And so we hide behind this and we say, see, you're never to judge anybody because only those without sin can judge. And brother, that's not you, right? So then we look at Paul. And next week, we're going to look at a very difficult passage where someone in the church is in sin. And Paul is applying loving discernment to the situation. And it's going to be hard. So we have to understand how he loved them. You see, those instances of the Bible saying not to judge apply very specifically when somebody is saying your sin is worse than my sin. I'm better than you because I'm not as sinful as you. You're worse than me because I'm not as sinful as you. That's the kind of judgment the Bible says don't you dare do. Because it's wrong. You're putting yourself in the place of God and you're saying you're holy and righteous and everybody knows better and you're not. And that's what the religious leaders were doing constantly. They were making themselves look good by making everybody else look bad. And Jesus in all of Scripture says, don't do that. That's wrong. But going back to my opening illustration, seeing a child running out into the street You make a discerning judgment call. That child's going to get hurt. This is dangerous. Is that a judgment? Yes. If you don't take action, are you loving that child? No. In that case, it is actually unloving to fail to judge and to fail to act on that. Now, this is hard, right? Because we are sinful people. We make mistakes. We do things wrong. Paul understands that. 
And so he is so concerned with keeping his eyes on Jesus Christ. So as he is discerning what's going on, he is not applying his own wisdom, his own logic, his own experience. He is taking the very teachings of Christ and applying it to the situation. And he's not holding up to them, you should do what I think you should do. He's saying, you need to follow Christ. And if I'm following Christ, then I'm an example. But if I'm not, let me get out of the way. You keep following Christ. This discernment is important. And this kind of discerning love, Christians are commanded to show to each other. Not in a sense that we beat each other up, but in a sense that we, if somebody's going in the wrong direction, we lovingly say, hey, let me talk to you about what God has for you. Because it's much, much better than the way you're going. This is hard. How do we keep discerning love from slipping into judgmental arrogance? Because it often does. By keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. By being so focused and saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ that yes, both condemns sin, but also saves us from sin. Paul loved the Corinthians with a discerning love because he knew that's how Christ had loved him. God didn't look at us in our sin and say, oh, it's no big deal as long as you're happy, man. I just want you to be happy. Just do whatever makes you happy. That makes the cross absolutely meaningless. In fact, I would say it's more than meaningless. It makes the cross hideous and cruel and awful to send your son to die this awful death to accomplish nothing. I want nothing to do with a God like that. But a God that said there's only one way for your sins to be saved. And yes, they are sins. And yes, they are deserving of judgment. So therefore, I will do my utmost to save you from them. I will take your sin. I will put it on my son. And he will bear your punishment so that you can live. That is a discerning love. And throughout, Paul had talked about this weighing the wisdom of God, this discerning love against the worldly wisdom. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 17, you'll see he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then further down in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So here he is looking at the situation in Corinth and he's saying, you have these other leaders, these other teachers who have come in and they have these amazing words. And I'm going to come in discernment. And I'm going to make a judgment on this. And he says, I'm going to see what kind of power they have. Now what is he talking about here? Because some people might take this to say, well, Christ is looking for them to speak in tongues. Christ is looking for some sort of miraculous demonstration of God's presence in their life. And actually, that second part I would agree with. The question is how? Is he looking for some magnificent signs and wonders? And I would say no, because later in the book, he actually downplays that. He says, no, that's prone to abuse. It needs to be kept in its proper place. That's not what I'm talking about. I think we find the answer in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. First part of Romans 1, 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power, there's the same word, of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And the rest of Romans shows us what that power does. 
that power shows us that we're all sinners. That we are powerless to save ourselves. The power shows us that God saves us through His power, through faith, through His power, the faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. That that power then comes into our life and we are brought from death to life. We are not who we were. And then it changes us. We become new people. And from Romans chapter 12 on, it talks about the new people that we are to be in Jesus Christ. The new relationships, the new attitudes, the humility that we are to show. It is a changed life because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I believe what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, I'm going to come and not just listen to these other speakers. I'm going to look at their life. Because if I don't see the power of Christ in their life and I only hear it in their talk, then they are not who you should be listening to whatsoever. Let me step out of the passage for a second. Because I think all people struggle with this. We listen to people on the radio, on the news, and we say, oh, I just love what this guy says and he's just so bold and he's so great. And and you go, yeah, but he's really an arrogant guy. He's just so full of himself. He's constantly promoting himself. Oh, but he just what he says about the administration, about politics, it's so good. Christians, can I tell you, we've got to stop. We need to say, you know, I like what he says, but I can't stand his attitude. It's not Christ-like whatsoever. And this isn't just in the secular media. It crosses over into Christian life. There are pastors, there's one recently that had to leave his church out in Seattle. Because he's just a jerk. He's been so arrogant and so abusive of so many people. And the thing is, it wasn't like one day he decided, okay, today I'm just going to be really rude. He was like that all along, but people excused it because he wrote great books and he spoke great things and people were just in awe of him. And I would read what he wrote and I thought, man, I just, there was something in my heart that just said, this isn't good. Friends, we've got to be so admiring of people just because of how awesome they are on a stage. Because i got to tell you, as somebody who's up here, this is easy. And it scares me to death how easy this is. It's the day-to-day stuff and how we work with each other to lead each other toward Jesus Christ, how we are humble when we're persecuted and when we're attacked, how we we bring the, the wisdom of God to bear on our situations even when the world says this is ridiculous, that's hard. And if a leader can't get that right, you have no reason to follow them or listen to them. And I give you that permission in my own life as well. I want to be able to say like Paul, follow me as I'm following Christ. Because if I'm not following Christ, kick me to the curb and find somebody that is and keep following Christ. Paul loved them with a fatherly love, a life-giving love, a trailblazing love, a persistent love, and a discerning love, and finally, an active love. He loved them with a love that actually did something. Look at the last verse. Verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? I think as a dad, I'm going to memorize this. I like this a lot. And my kids might start hearing this all the time. Hey guys, uh, should I come upstairs with a rod of discipline or with love and a gentle spirit? You see, Paul's saying, I love you too much to just let this go. I am going to do something. 
Because love acts. It does something. It doesn't just stand on the, the sideline and say sweet nothings. It acts. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I love you so much, and you are going off track. I'm going to do something. Then he says, my actions will be determined by your actions. If you are repentant, if you are humble and you take what I've been saying to you and you apply it to your life and you turn back to Christ, then my love, my act of love will be to come and encourage and admonish and to help you along the way. But if you are not, I must still show love to you. And that love will take the form of harsh words and warnings and challenges. And it's difficult. And we don't like to talk about those things in the church today. And I got to tell you, according to Paul, I really believe if someone is stuck in unrepentant sin and we don't challenge them on it, we are failing to love that person. That's hard. We have to watch how we do it, but we must have an active love. We must love people too much to simply do nothing. So Paul was pursuing the Corinthians with his love. Fatherly love, life-giving love, a trailblazing love, a persistent love, a discerning love, and an active love. Paul did that for the Corinthians. And we are to do that for others because we know that's what Christ has done for us. And we need to understand a big picture of Christ's love so we understand how amazing it is and how amazing it is of of what he's done for us that he loved us that much to pursue us. Christ pursues us through his word. That might be through preaching, teaching. It might be through your own reading. It's one way that he pursues us to say, I want you to know who I am. When you read God's word, there's going to be things you love and you rejoice and you want to pin them up on your mirror and read it every day and just say, oh, this is so great. I need this. There's other things you want to go, never want to see that again. How dare you, God, say that to me? Remember, those passages are no less love than the encouraging portions. And sometimes that's the very love that we need in that moment. Christ pursues us through the cross. He came and lived among us, went to the cross for us, to save us. If you are here, I guarantee you, through the truth of Scripture, you have been pursued and are being pursued by the love of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. No one can deny that. God pursues us through the presence of his Holy Spirit in us. God says when we are saved, he puts his presence in us. And as a Christian, there are those times, there's that nagging feeling of, I think maybe I'm doing something wrong. I I know that God says not to do this, but I want to do this anyway. And, And we have that guilt and that shame. That might be God's pursuing love. Saying, my child, come back. And instead, we look at it and say, oh God, how dare you? He dares because he loves us. Christ pursues us in love through the church. Community of believers that gather together to love each other based on the word of God. To point each other to this word, not our words. So we say, look, you need to come back to the love of Jesus Christ. So what about you? Is Christ pursuing you with his love today? 
Maybe it's through hardships and difficulties. Maybe it's through feeling guilty about something. Maybe it's through the tough words of Scripture. Maybe it's through this message of salvation, hearing that Christ wants a relationship with you and he's done everything possible and necessary through the cross. Maybe it's through a time of encouragement and rest. Maybe it's through an opportunity to be an example to somebody else, to live and speak in such a way that they know Christ is pursuing them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this kind of love is difficult to accept because the world wants to take it and twist it and make it as something ugly and awful and our own sin wants to take it and twist it and make it as something ugly and awful and we lose sight of your love for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be so consumed by your love that pursues us on your terms that then we would live our lives as an example of that love for others to follow. May we be able to say with Paul, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.